Ramble. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging. And that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frieda McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for a job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees, even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters, especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days Bada bing, bada boom. welcome to this week's mini soda rotten mango i'm your host stephanie sue when somebody goes missing without a trace it's enough to make the hairs on my arm stand up. Like, it just doesn't make sense in a lot of these situations. I don't think that humans, we don't like things where we can't make sense of it, which I think is why we resort to coming up with the most bizarre conspiracy theories that we can imagine up, because at least knowing something gives us some sort of comfort. True. But when someone goes missing, no trace, no clue, no lead, just vanish into thin air. One second they're in a bar, the next second they're gone. No CCTV cameras catch them leaving the bar. One second they're at an airport, the next second they're caught running away from the airport and never seen again on the face of this planet. One second they're on the phone with their loved ones telling them that something weird is happening. The phone clicks and they're gone, vanished into thin air. It is enough to drive people mad. Where did they go? It just doesn't make sense. Well, in the small rural town of Chowchilla, California, it was amplified to the 27th degree. Because 27 people vanished into thin air at the same time. <laughs> Not just any ordinary people either. Elementary school kids. 26 kids and their bus driver, gone. The kids were on the school bus waiting for their stop to go home like they did five days a week. But that day, they wouldn't even go home. Was the bus gone too? Yeah. Soon, the entire town erupted into just pure chaos. Like, imagine it. Parents are calling the authorities. They're crying in their yards. They're praying in their cars while scanning the roads for their little babies. The authorities are panicking. They want helicopters in the air. Stat, we gotta find that bright yellow school bus. I mean, there's only so many places it could be hiding. The sheriff's office would eventually locate the bus. But it was completely empty. Not a soul in sight. Again. 
where and how would 26 kids and an adult disappear off to? It attracted national attention. Every single hotel room and motel room in that town was booked out by the FBI. They descended into town to help solve what was about to be one of the biggest mysteries and one of the biggest kidnapping cases the United States had ever seen. The theories start floating around. Maybe it was terrorists. Maybe it was a local group of prisoners that escaped. No, no, who else would want to hurt our kids? Aliens? That's the only thing that makes sense. I mean, how can so many people disappear without a trace? <gasps> Maybe it's the Zodiac Killer. This is before the Zodiac Killer was caught. Well, the Zodiac Killer was allegedly recently caught, so you get it. News stations without any proof even sinisterly hinted that maybe the bus driver was involved. Even though he had no criminal record, he had a spotless reputation for 20 plus years of being a bus driver. Maybe he snapped, they said. Maybe he had sick thoughts all along and we didn't know. Yeah, they were doing the most with their baseless allegations. And then the town went silent. News had spread. The mayor's wife had received an anonymous phone call. The voice on the other line said, The children will be found, but there will be others. It's not over. And they hung up. 26 elementary school kids, a bus driver, go missing in broad daylight. And why were they all buried alive? As always, full show notes are available at RottenMinglePodcast.com. But there's an interesting book on this case called Why Have They Taken Our Children? by Jack Bow and Jefferson Morgan. This is a heavily talked about case, but out of all the pages and pages to dig through on this one, I would say that this book is one of the most comprehensive deep dives on this case to date. So with that being said, let's get into it. The kids freaking loved summer school at Dairyland Elementary School. That's like such a cute elementary school name. The kids love summer school. And I know that sounds strange because I grew up hating summer school, having to go to the same cold building every single day during the summer when all you want to do is like be out in the sun. Not the Dairyland kids. They loved it. Their school was pretty cool. They had swim days where the kids were allowed to frolic in the swimming pool all day, learning the breaststroke, the frog. Like these are kids that had likely had never been to an ocean before. So they're like, it's swim pool day. That day that they went missing was actually swimming day. So everyone was really excited when they got on that bus. They would have arts and crafts during summer school and they had what they called the wacky Olympics. I mean, the kids loved it so much that the parents of the students were petitioning to have it extend all the way into the fall year, meaning some of these kids would be at school all year round minus the weekends. That's how much they liked it. So it felt especially cruel that 26 children at Dairyland Summer School were about to endure the most traumatic incident of their lives. They were about to be kidnapped and buried alive. Frank Edward Ray always went by Ed. That was his nickname, just Ed. People said he was a barrel-chested man. He's a farm boy. He grew up on a farm, still has a farm, but his nephew said barrel-chested, just like the rest of the Rays. Barrel-chested meaning you don't know where their chest and their stomach starts. And this is kind of pertinent, but they're pretty strong. Like, they've got some crazy upper body strength is what he's trying to say. Ed was exactly what you wanted in a bus driver. Okay, Sometimes bus drivers are nice. Sometimes they're so scary. I had one bus driver where I was so scared to even get on the bus because I had to pass her and to sit down on the bus. She was a very scary Why? woman. She just always yelled at us. Mm. And she had, we had very strict rules. It was very intense. Ed? Ed was perfect. He had been a bus driver for 23 years. And that's pretty long. Like, he had been a bus driver for so long that he drove some kids of his former passengers. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And when he wasn't working, he was on the farm with his wife. 
the kids would try to call him Mr. Ray, and he's like, no, 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 I'm just Ed. He would joke around with them, and they had almost this mutual respect, so whenever Ed did tell the kids to do something, they tried to listen to him. They didn't try to ignore him. So that hot day in June, Ed is focused. You gotta be focused when you're a school bus driver. Like, these are all kids that are trying to get home. Like, this is a very important job. So Ed is focused on the next stop. He had just dropped off Suzanne. He had 26 kids left. He's like, okay, next stop, Lisa Barletta. That's what he had on his mind. He had no idea the bus was being followed. They would never make it to Lisa's place. In a tiny little road, in the tiny little town, Ed pulls up. And there's a white Dodge van parked almost smack dab in the middle of the road. There was no way Ed could go around it because the road is pretty small. And he assumed that the driver had probably gotten out to use the restroom. Like we're talking farmland. He glanced around. Nobody. He's slowing to a stop. And then in the matter of a few seconds, a man in khaki overalls, white gloves. And you know those like tights, the nylon stockings that you wear in your legs? Mm-hmm. Well, they had pulled it over their head, so instead of really covering their face, it's more like distorting the look of their face, mm. which I think could be scarier. And he's pointing a gun straight at Ed. He demanded that Ed open the door, but curiously, very interestingly, this man said it very politely. He said, would you open the door, please? What? Open your door, please. Ed did as he was told, and two more men, dressed similarly, jumped into the van. One had a sawed-off shotgun in his hand. Jump into the van? Into the bus. Oh. Sorry. They ordered Ed to the back of the bus and told him to keep quiet. The sad part is, the kids didn't even register at first what was happening. In fact, some of the kids thought it was some sort of joke. Some even laughed that whoever these guys were were wearing pantyhose over their faces. The gunmen ordered all the kids to the back of the bus, and off they went. Two of the gunmen in the bus with the now terrified children and the bus driver. The third man went back into the white van ahead of them, and they both started driving. So the kids, they're flocking to Ed, asking him in the back of the bus, like, what's going on, Ed? Like, what what do we do? And he just told them, be quiet and do what they say, okay? Some of the kids couldn't even grasp the situation. Some thought it was way too bizarre to even be real. Other kids, they just had a sense that they were going to die. And they started sobbing. And these are elementary school, like 7, 8, 9, 10. Yeah, so the oldest kid was 14-year-old Mike Marshall, and the youngest kid was Monica Ardrey, who was only 5 years old. But most of the kids were 5 to 10 years old. Wow. So you're talking about some very, very young kids. Ed Ray, the driver, was stunned. I mean, he was so scared he had no idea what was going on. He had heard of carjackings, but nobody jacks a school bus filled with children. They even drove by Ed's close friend's farm and Ed is like desperately looking out the window hoping his buddy Clarence is going to look up from his farm work and see that Ed's not the one driving the bus and he's going to know something is off, right? And Ed is watching as the farm gets closer and closer and he's looking out the window with pleading eyes. I mean, what is he going to do? He can't even throw himself out the window. And they drive and Clarence is too busy to look up. They drove for about a mile. And then it was announced that the ride was about to get bumpy. They were going off the road, into the woods. They drove over this thick vegetation, just heads bumping around, bodies being slammed into each other. Then the bus skidded to a stop in front of two vans, a white van and a green van. First, the white van pulled up to the very back of the school bus, so both trunks were facing each other. They opened the back doors of the white van, opened the back door of the school bus, and they ordered the kids to hop from the school bus to the white van without even touching the ground. They said, we don't want to leave any footprints. So once the white bus was filled with half the kids, the green bus took its spot, and all the kids hopped on 
and Ed was in the green bus or the green van. Now, the van, they had done some work on it. The drivers, the driver's side and the passenger side, so the very front of the vans were partitioned off by this plywood. So once you get into the back of the van, there's really no seats. It's just carpeting, and you're sitting on the ground. There's zero windows, and the minute that those back doors slam shut, complete and utter darkness. And for hours, the van started driving. The kids, Ed, nobody had any idea where they were headed. Nobody told them. And as time passed, the kids started having these nervous breakdowns. One of them started sobbing. They're going to take us somewhere and we're never going to see our moms and dads again. Some kids sobbed for hours on hours and then passed out in pure exhaustion. Other kids, they try to sing songs to keep sane. Like, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Ed remembered one kid had told him, Ed, I have to go to the bathroom. And he just looked at him and somberly told him, well, you just have to go then. I don't want to have to go in my pants. You just have to. Another kid pleaded, are we going to stop for dinner? Ed tried to be calm and he told them, I don't know, sweetie. But soon enough, the back of the van started to fill with the stench of urine, gasoline, and there was no ventilation. So the whole place is just getting so hot, so sticky. This is June in Northern California. It's going to be quite odd. Some kids started throwing up for emotion sickness. Other kids threw up because the smell got so suffocating. The children started losing concept of time and space. So some of the kids, they claimed that they thought they were going up and down these crazy hills and taking these sharp turns. And other kids were arguing, no, it was a relatively straight road the whole time. The kids who had been awake the entire time argued that the ride was six hours long. The kids who fell asleep argued that it probably lasted an hour. In reality, they were on an 11-hour road trip from hell. Wow. But it was nothing compared to what was about to happen next. They had no idea how long it had been, where they were, what time it was. All they knew was that the kidnappers were opening up the doors. They asked for Ed to be near the door first. They wanted him out. The doors opened and Ed hoped, maybe there's going to be sunlight, at least some stars in the sky, maybe some fresh air. But right when he stepped out, he looked up and saw a green enclosure. It's almost like someone had taken the green plasticky tarp and put it next to some sticks and made like this dome so that the vans could drive in and nobody could see them from above. Is it kind of like a greenhouse situation, like a little cover, sheet cover? Yes, but it's like completely opaque. You can't see through it. Yeah, Yeah. And there's walls, so they can't even see where they are. And from there, two armed men are staring at him through their weird masks i guess if you can even call it that what's your name edray how old are you 55 they made him strip down to nothing but his underwear he felt very uncomfortable knowing that the children would have to witness him like that so he's trying to plead with the kidnappers you know i have grandkids i want to see them again but they didn't respond and ed was thrown into this hole in the ground with a ladder leading down into almost this underground bunker i wouldn't even call it a bunker i would really call it a giant coffin really it was a giant trailer like imagine a u-haul trailer without the front part of the car buried underground how is it very deep yeah and the only way in is there was a hole drilled into the middle and you have to Mm. go down a ladder okay it was um it was very scary so ed looked at the kidnappers you know he looked at the two vans full of children that he was supposed to protect and he could do nothing but go down the hole Then one by one, the kids were pulled out of the van, told to strip down into either their bathing suits because it was swim day or their underwear. Everything else was taken from them. They were routinely asked, what's your name and how old are you? 
Just to give you some context to how young these kids are, Linda was a 10-year-old that was a part of the group, and she said that she thought the kidnappers were kind of cute. She said that she was annoyed that they had taken her purse because it had her boyfriend's picture in it. I mean, I think that just shows us kids retain their childish innocence, even in situations like this, and for some reason that makes it more heartbreaking. Five-year-old Monica Argery, the youngest of the victims, she couldn't even pronounce her own name yet. That's how young she was. And each name that was given, the kidnappers would write down on an old jack-in-the-box bag, like one of those paper bags that fast foods give you. One by one, the kids went down the hole and they were shocked. There were two flashlights to illuminate this base, but it was like their worst nightmare. It's a full-grown adult's worst nightmare. Inside the ground, someone had buried a giant trailer, and there was metal wires on all the sides because the walls, the ceilings, everything was caving in from the pressure and weight of the soil. At any moment, the trailer could crumble and they would be squished to death, buried alive. The air was thick and hot. There were two holes additional from the entrance and exit hole. So there was two smaller holes that had these giant tubes in and out of it. That was for ventilation, but that was it. There was no escape and all 27 of them had effectively been buried inside of a giant coffin for God knows what. And the hole they had just come down from had a steel plate that was slid on top and then they could hear things being placed on top of that steel plate. So they were stuck underground. Nobody told them why. They had no idea who or even what was going on. They didn't even know if this was going to be the worst to come or if there was something more in store for them. The kids start crying, bawling their eyes out, and Ed tries to be strong for them. But he said that there were plenty of times that he lost his composure and just started crying. It felt like they were just literally waiting for the roof to collapse. They had limited, very limited food that the kidnappers had left, and it was all gone in an hour after feeding 26 starving children, and they only had five gallon jugs of water on the inside. The air was so stale and hot, the lack of oxygen was having kids pass out or becoming delirious. Some start fading away. Every hour that passed felt excruciatingly slow, and then boom, everyone glanced up. The batteries in one of the flashlights had burned out. And now they only had a tiny light that was growing weaker and weaker. And soon they were going to be plunged into complete darkness. This is when Ed, the driver, and the oldest kid, Mike, they're like, yeah, no, <laughs> we're not going to die like this. Mike is 14, but he's a gutsy kid. His dad was a champion road rodeo rider, you know, and like those bulls and stuff. And he's like, I didn't, I didn't raise no quitter. So after 12 hours of being in the bunker, so this is 24 hours since the bus had been hijacked. They drove for 11 hours and they've been in this bunker for 12 plus hours. And it's actually been close to like 30 or 40 hours that Ed hadn't slept because before his bus shift, he had worked on the farm. Mm -hmm. So this guy has been awake for a hot minute and they decide that they're going to come up with a plan to get out. There were 14 mattresses inside the little bunker. 14. They were going to stack each of them on top of each other. Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how hard it is to even move one mattress on top of a bed frame? And you have a bunch of five-year-olds? It was mainly Mike, Ed, and a few 10-year-old boys that were helping in this endeavor. They're going to try to stack all the mattresses, get to the top of the roof, and then Ed would try to push the steel plate off and they would try to climb up the hole. They had no idea that the steel plate had 200 pounds of weight stacked on top of it. So they start moving the mattress. It was rough. Like, can you imagine in this type of heat? It took them forever. They had to constantly stop to pour water over their heads so they didn't pass out. It felt like any second they were going to faint. Kids were already passing out without doing any strenuous activity. But these, this handful of people, they really pushed through. Ed got to the steel plate, and this took hours. 
He finally got to the top. He starts pushing his hand through the gap of the steel plate in the roof. So it's not like an outfitted door. It's like someone literally dug a hole and then found a big steel plate and just plopped it on top. So they didn't plop it on perfectly. And on one side of the little hole, there was a little gap. So he starts, you know, pushing his fingers through. He manages to move a piece of lumber to widen the crack at the edge of the hole. Now that there's more space between the steel plate and the little crack, he's shoving his hand slowly but surely. Ed and Mike inch the steel plate to the side. It's not completely out of the way, but it's to the side. And then they see that there's two tractor batteries that are stacked on top. These are giant batteries that fuel tractors, which is like heavy machinery. Um, Very dangerous, actually, because they can leak acid. But they're also 100 pounds each. So Ed managed to grab it from the top and slowly slide it down. Do you know how much upper body strength that is? I can't even imagine. He slid it, so he removed it from on top of the steel plate, slid it down the tiny hole, maintaining composure, not dropping it on anyone, and then put it to his chest, lowered it onto the top of the mattress, then he brought it down from the stack of, what, 14 mattresses, and then moved it all the way to the end so none of the kids would get hurt if acid started dripping from it. He did this twice. And once they moved that steel plate at the end, you're like, wow, they're free. They're not. Someone had basically boarded up that hole on top with like a cardboard cover. Like not cardboard, but plywood. You know that plywood that you can get at Home Depot? It's like that shredded wood. So it's not necessarily the hardest piece of wood, but it's it's pretty intense. Boarded up what? On top of all of this, they had put a bunch of like a big slab of plywood because they don't want any of the soil to get through. And then they put soil on top of the plywood. What? Yeah, so for the hole, they put the steel plate, the two tractor batteries, a piece of giant piece of plywood, and then they stacked more soil on top so that the the ground would be level. The hole where the steel plate is, there's a little bit of soil around it, but it's um it's mainly at the top of the trailer. Mm-hmm. But the trailer is buried. Oh. So they need to put soil on top. Otherwise, you're like, hey, what is this random circular hole? And why am I looking down and I see a steel plate? In the ground. Got it, got it. Right, so there's a bunch of, you know, there's plywood and now there's a bunch of soil. So they have to get through the plywood. They can't move the plywood because there's soil on top of the plywood. It's not going to budge. Like, there's no leeway on this one. This is what's holding the weight of the soil. So basically, Ed starts clawing at the plywood, clawing at the dirt, tearing his fingernails and hands, trying to rip off pieces of, of the plywood. And he's sweating profusely. The more that he's getting through with the plywood, there's the dust from the plywood itself. There's the dust from the soil that's sleeping through. I mean, his eyes were burning. His lungs were on fire. And when he couldn't do it anymore, his fingers were bleeding. His lungs are throbbing. He tumbled down and poured water over his face. And 14-year-old Mike and 10-year-old Robert Gonzalez kept working. And when they were too tired, eight-year-old John Estabrook would come help. These kids are honestly so brave, like, I don't even know what to say. At one point, Ed said that he just wanted to sob there and lay there, and he was so simply drained. He had no more adrenaline left in his body, and he just, he couldn't do it. But he was like, I gotta go up there, and I gotta give it one last chance. And there, he ripped the plywood about two square inches. And from there, the soil came pouring in. And Ed and the kids, they would dig through the soil up top until it came pouring in. And then they would dig and pour it in and then dig. And they dug through the plywood and the soil. And they finally saw a small, tiny little hole where light was coming through. Ed looked at the kids and told them to shh. He had no idea where the kidnappers were. They didn't know if one of them was just waiting there, sitting there, right? He said he didn't see anyone. Just some trees and a few old trucks. 
So they started digging faster and feverishly, and then finally, Robert was the first kid that climbed out of the hole. He starts scraping dirt away from with his hands, whiting in the hole more and more, and then finally, they were free. Now, there's still um, wire mesh around the hole. Like, it's not covering the hole, but there's some around. Mm -hmm. And Ed didn't want the kids to get hurt as he's pushing them up the hole. So he used his bare hands to widen the wires apart. And um, yeah, he was his hands were splurting blood. He didn't care. He had a responsibility to protect these kids. He had to get these kids home. That's what he had been doing for 20 plus years. He jumped down the hole. Ed, and he started lifting the kids up one by one. Mike would catch the kids from top, pass them to Robert Gonzalez, and one by one, the kids breathed fresh air again. Ed was the last one out, and he was sweating, drenched in dirt and blood, and he looked around, adjusting his eyes, but he had one more pressing problem. He had no idea where the hell they were. So he whipped his head around, looking from side to side. All he could see in the very far distance was a dirt road, and he told the kids, come on, kids, we're all going to go together, okay? Around 8.15 p.m., a quarry worker spotted Ed Ray. A quarry is like an open mine, technically. And 26 kids covered in dirt in their underwear approached them. And Ed called out, We're from Chowchilla. We've been buried. The workers knew. Because for the past 24 hours plus, the whole world had basically stopped to look for them. But it wouldn't be over. Because for these 27 people... It would never be over. To pull off the biggest kidnapping in the United States, it would take a team, a team of organized criminals who knew what they were doing, like an organization, if you will. You have to be evil enough, motivated enough, and probably smart enough, right? This team was far from the dream team. It's almost like an intro to a bad joke. An old money rich kid, an incel in the making, and a horse boy walk into a bar. What happens? What? Yeah. Even afterwards, the detectives are like, this was the dumbest kidnapping plan we had ever seen in our lives. Let's start with Frederick Newhall Woods IV. Whenever I hear a name like that, I'm like, is that person rich? Because they sound kind of rich. It is such a fancy sounding name. And in this case, my assumption was completely right. Frederick Newhall Woods IV was a rich kid growing up in San Francisco. He genuinely was old, old money. His great-grandfather had built his wealth during the gold rush and heavily invested in land and eventually railroads. The family used all that money to found the Newhall Land and Farming Company in the late 1800s. It's a public company, and I guess to really simplify their business model, they own hundreds of thousands of acres of land, and they most likely bought it for pennies on the dollar. Then they rent out that land to farmers. At one point, they were bringing in like half a billion dollars in revenue in a single fiscal year. Wow. It's a public company. They're still around. Our apartment lease in New York City is almost up, which means it's time for that hunt for the perfect apartment again. And I'm sure everyone can agree to this, but when your apartment takes off all of the boxes, you feel so much happier being home. You look forward to going home, but it is hard. It is hard finding the perfect place, especially in a place like New York. For us, we need to have an in-unit washer and dryer. That is like a non-negotiable. We need to have hardwood floors because of my allergies. And we love any unit facing Southwest. That is golden hour prime time. And since we're not in New York City right now, we've been using Apartments.com to help us find our new home. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all of your specific unique boxes. 
I love that there's a ton of 3D virtual tours, which have come in honestly so handy for us because we're constantly traveling these days. It saves us so much time and money, and it's really helpful for if you're moving to a new city. Maybe you're moving to the next town over. Saves you so much time. My favorite feature, though, is the amenity filters. So you can make sure your possible future home has all of the amenities you need. Like I said, in-unit washer and dryer. But you can even search for units with a balcony so you can enjoy a nice sunrise with your coffee. And once you find a new place that you like, you can even favorite them so they're all neatly organized. I get so excited to apartment hunt every night with my fiance. So visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate, I wrap up in my coziest blanket, and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June, and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So without even learning how to harvest a single crop, which don't quote me on that, like maybe they're farmers now, okay? They have different divisions since then, but they're raking in millions upon millions upon millions every single year, like... Real estate money is as as old money aesthetic as you can get. And all the kids, they worked hard to make sure that they would fulfill our Pinterest old money aesthetic dreams. All the New Hawk kids learned tennis, took horseback riding lessons, got their first cars when they turned 16, and they even enrolled in the most prestigious colleges that their parents had already picked for them, donated to, and probably they themselves have already graduated from. Yeah, legacy students. So Fred's dad, for example, went to Stanford. And Fred's dad, who has the same name, Frederick Newhall Woods III, <laughs> he was a bit more humble than his Newhall counterparts. The guy just wanted to live in a cottage. You're like, wow, a cottage? It was going to be a cottage-style home mansion in the middle of his 70-something acres of land that he owned smack dab in the middle of prominent, wealthy, affluent Bay Area neighborhood in Northern California. But like... <laughs> regular people dreams you know that's what he just wanted to live a regular life he was a humble guy 
Fred's mom was of the same pedigree. She was the daughter of a respectable family from Palo Alto and an honor student from Berkeley. So the couple would actually go on to have two kids. So Fred the fourth, obviously, but also Fred had a little sister that nobody knew existed. When Fred was six years old, his parents introduced another child, but she was cognitively impaired to the point where she would never develop past the mental age of five. I don't want to say that her parents were almost ashamed to talk about her, but I'm going to say it because that's very much the energy that I'm picking up on. Most people didn't even know that they had a second child. They thought that Fred was the only child. Now, if you walked into the old money multimillionaire's humble abode, you would see a tiny little photo in the corner of the living room and you're like, wait, who's that? That looks like a family portrait. Who's that girl I've never seen? And Fred would just be like, a family friend, forget it. The whole family practically acted like she didn't exist. So eventually, the family would keep that estate, but they would move into a modest mansion in San Francisco. And Fred's parents didn't really participate much in the family business. They didn't really have great relationships with other members of the Newhall Empire, which, very interesting, but these old money families are so big, there's like so many people involved. So the fact that there's like whole ass companies and these family members are like, eh, we don't really know them that well. It's kind of crazy. They didn't even care to get more and more shares of the family company. Like, they did not care for the games of succession. Interestingly enough, Fred was spoiled. You know, he didn't need to want anything, but he was not essentially summering in Lake Como and doing winters in the Alps like you would imagine he would. His parents were, though. His parents loved to travel, and it seemed very routine that they would constantly leave Fred behind. (laughs) It doesn't seem like they're negligent parents, but Fred definitely was lacking some love and affection. But they weren't mean. When he was younger, it didn't seem like he cared for money that much. Even in high school, he went to this super posh, prestigious high school where almost every single student there was a member of some sort of dynastic rich family who had unimaginable financial and political strength. Like, they all tended to have a certain aura to them, a certain energy. They were preppy. They didn't curse. They were kind of snotty, you know? They were very academia vibes. But not Fred. Fred liked to curse, and he was socially awkward. He really didn't have any friends other than a kid named James Schoenfield. Now, James often went by the name Jim. Jim was an incel in the making. He came from a family who did pretty well for themselves. Uh, Jim's dad was in podiatry. It took a really long time for Jim's dad to claw his way up from the middle class to the upper class. It took him like decades. But when he finally made it, geographically, it wasn't a farm move. He just like moved to the next neighborhood over and he's like, okay, I'm in the upper class now. Great. (laughs) Yeah, the land of the privilege. Jim had two other siblings, an older brother, and a little brother named Rick. Okay, Jim and Rick are like best buds. The two of them, they grew up together raising horses and training their hunting dog. They were both smart, academically. Maybe not in any other sense of that word. They got great grades. Rick even graduated high school in just three years. Both of them tried to go to college mainly because their father is like, Hey, I'm a doctor. You should be a doctor. But nothing really stuck. So Jim and Rick, they didn't drink, they didn't smoke, they didn't do drugs, but there's some evidence that Rick would smoke pot here and there. But that was it. For fun, they would play chess, play card card games. They also loved to log everything. Like, they both journaled so voraciously. Like, that's all they did is sit there and journal. Rick even had um, a cipher so that nobody could understand what he wrote unless they had the code to his cipher. So everything was written in code. There was nothing nefarious in that diary, though. Just sexually frustrating, insecure desires for financial stability and success. Just very normal things. Jim was a little bit more outgoing than Rick. Rick's only friends were his two horses, Stella and Honcho. 
So you've got Fred the rich kid, Rick the horse kid, and now Jim the incel kid. So Jim wrote in his diary about how he was fascinated and intimidated by women all at the same time. He said that he longed to find the perfect love, but he also felt super insecure that a woman would never love him. He said that he would watch pageants like Miss America, and he thought, these women are just so, so beautiful. And then he would wonder, what would they ever see in a man like me? What would they want to see in their ideal type of man? It's honestly a little sad, okay? Up until this point, I feel sympathetic. And then, um, then it gets weird. He would have these diary entries about how he needed the perfect wife, and he listed strict moral, physical, and intellectual criteria for the perfect wife. And just when you're like, okay, dude, like, what do you have going for yourself? The next entry, he would write about his own shortcomings that prevented him from being a perfect husband. So it's very confusing. He also wrote that he wanted to move to Asia, where he felt it was easier to get a wife. That's great. Um, I'm just going to leave that one there. Do with it what you will, but I feel uncomfortable. He claimed it was because he was six feet tall. And leading into a stereotype he believed, he believed he would be taller than most of the Asian men in Asia. So he would have the upper hand in dating. That's what he said. It's a weird friendship duo, if you ask me. Fred, the rich old money kid, and Jim, the incel. Okay, technically it's a trio, but it was more like Fred and Jim are BFFs, and Rick, the brother, the horse guy, he's just kind of there. <laughs> like, Jim was a smart kid, at least, academically, I guess. But they were both into cars. Like, that's what they were bonding over. They just had a passion for cars. And it wasn't just, ooh, I like cars and driving around in them because I'm, like, a high schooler, I'm a teenager, and driving is so cool. They actually like the machinery. So they like to go buy junk cars and fix them up. So Fred and Jim, the unlikely duo, are created, and in comes Sanjal Fay. Sanjal Fay is Fred's high school girlfriend. They start dating senior year, and there was just something different about her. Fred had never opened up to anyone before, but she wasn't like his classmates. She was a runaway from home, and she was with the foster family. I mean, this is like a K-drama in the making. Rich kid meets troubled runaway who doesn't come from money, and Fred liked the fact that she was raw. She understood him on a deep level. She would never judge him. And they bonded over the fact that she always felt rejected by her parents too, for very different reasons from Fred. So at just 19 years old, Fred is ready for the next step. He's like, I want to commit to you for the rest of my freaking life. Let's get married. They get married, move into a small apartment. Fred gets a job at a paint store and he freaking hates it. He hates everything about it. He hates his job, his marriage, his apartment. You know, his wife isn't happy either. She would later say, it was really dumb. You know, I was alone. He took me in. It was a mistake. I didn't love him. I was just grateful. Fred realized what a horrible mistake he had made, and he starts taking that out on his wife. He felt paranoid. He keeps thinking, oh my god, this girl married me for my money, for my family wealth. Which, side note, Fred's shares in the company seem to have grown over time, and the value of those shares have grown exponentially as well. So it's speculated that um, at one point when he was arrested, he had an inheritance somewhere around the ballpark of $100 million. What? Yeah. But Are you kidding it, it's been me? like on and off disputed, but it, it seems to be reported in court documents that it was nearly a hundred million dollars. Wow. Which is insane. But around the time that he was married to his wife, his inheritance, money he couldn't even access at this point, mind you, was around three hundred thousand. Which, yes, that's insane. Like who starts with that type of inheritance? But maybe you're not gonna have the world's best sugar daddy with that. 
But Fred was so anxious. He constantly accused his wife of wanting his money and she was so confused. Later, he unexpectedly inherited more shares of the company, stretching his inheritance to nearly $3 million. And he was over the freaking moon and devastated at the same time. He felt like the woman that he slept next to in bed every single night was out to get him. Was out to get his money. His wife was so freaking fed up, she got a damn job. Okay, the arrangement was that he was going to work and she was going to take care of the house and stuff. But nope, she got a cleaning job just to shut him up. Like, just to be like, I am not here for your stupid money. Fred would never get over it. And after a year, he would file for divorce. He couldn't do it anymore. He held his breath thinking she was going to try and rob him for everything that he had. But she only took $1,000 that her in-laws had given her specifically as a wedding gift. And that was that. She just walked away. Fred moved back in with his parents, and you would think after everything that Sonjal went through, she would despise this weird man who accused her of being a gold digger and broke up with her for it. She didn't. She was interviewed for the book, and she just said, Uh, he was a very strange, different type of man. Frank what? Would, yeah. Fred would later lie to future girlfriends, claiming that he got a divorce because he was infertile, and his wife at the time really wanted kids. Which is not true. And his wife allegedly kept pressuring Fred to do some sort of bizarre test to probe around and make him fertile again, and he refused. Okay, this sounds like the beginning of some sort of pathological liar type of situation, but it's actually one of the only rare examples of Fred lying. So maybe he was just embarrassed to say why he really got a divorce. Besides, it's not like he had to recite this lie too many times. Fred did not have a string of girls waiting to date him. People who knew him when he was younger said that he had a real goofy look about him. Which, I don't think they were saying it to be nice, okay? He wasn't particularly attractive, that's what they said. Even in his early 20s, he had signs of male pattern baldness, which he would try to cover up with a cowboy hat. He was 6 feet tall, weighed less than 150 pounds. He only ever wore long sleeve shirts and jeans, even in the summer heat. Oddly, he never stank, though. Never smelled sweaty. He had a really intense standard for personal hygiene. He showered at least once a day, if not more. That was one of the qualities that attracted Irene Bozowski to Fred. You're like, that he doesn't smell? <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah, kind of. Irene just liked the fact that he was quiet. She thought he was introspective, attentive. She never saw him drink or smoke, you know, or even lose his temper. All he did was restore old cars with his high school bud, Jim Schoenfield. And yes, the business was up and down, but Fred also drove a shuttle bus for a big company. He later drove an ambulance. Whenever business slowed down, he seemed hardworking. Irene liked that, and she said she had never met anyone like him. It was interesting. He really liked to drive, truly. He's not one of those guys that were like, you guys want to see how fast I can go zero to 60? He just genuinely liked driving quietly for hours on hours on hours without saying a single word. Like, that was his thing. Another moment that Irene remembered that really solidified for her, like, this is the one for me, was when they went to Vegas. And uh, Fred was playing with the, the slot machines. He was using a couple nickels here and there. And Irene was like, hey, let's just bet on a race for shits and giggles. We're in Vegas. And he kept telling her, no, it's not worth gambling on. And he looked at her and he very seriously said, nothing is worth gambling on. Irene really liked that, you know, because, you know, I'm sure she had a lot of friends who had a lot of heartbreak from husbands who were gamblers, wasted away all their money in the casinos. This, this is refreshing. The two of them were even talking about moving in together. Fred would share his dream with her, his vision for the future. They would sit there and talk, and he would talk about how he wanted to live in a big mansion one day, and how he just needed to work hard and pay for it. 
Yeah, sounds like everything we all did January 1st. Making goals, setting resolutions for the future. Irene didn't think that he would kidnap 26 kids to get a mansion, but here he was. It's unclear what exactly motivated Fred and the Schoenfield brothers to kidnap 26 children, but it's speculated that it did indeed start with a mansion. At this time, all three of them were in abysmal financial situations. Like, it's not like they were in debt. It's not like they had these loan sharks breathing down their neck. They lived with their parents. Their basic needs seemed to be taken care of. They just wanted more freedom and respect. They wanted more financial power in their lives. And coming from families with privileged backgrounds, financial power is power. And they know that. And part of that power is owning a mansion, specifically a mansion called Rangstorf House. It's an old Victorian mansion in Mountain View. It was built in 1887, and it's been vacant since 1972. Fred's dream was to buy this mansion. He could only afford to buy the mansion, not the lot. So he had to buy the mansion and move it off the property, which is like just so expensive. Wait, what? Yeah. So sometimes you can just buy the house on top of the lot. <laughs> And then what? <laughs> and then move it to a cheaper lot and renovate it. Yeah, that was his plan. He was going to move that mansion to a cheaper lot, renovate it, and then run multiple businesses, future empires, future conglomerates, multinational companies that have IPO'd out of that mansion. It's like they wanted to buy a giant office space, a headquarters, before they even knew what business they wanted to be in or before even trying to run a business of their own. They said the mansion would be HQ for various businesses. Their car business, where they take old junk cars, fix them up, and sell it. But also a new film business. They were going to become screenwriters and producers. You know, they were going to produce Oscar-winning pictures. Oh, and then they were going to start a real estate firm. Because, you know, Fred's family was in real estate. Why don't they just turn one wing of the mansion into a hospital at this point? Because I don't even think that they have any experience in any of these fields. They're like, you know what? That sounds like some fancy businesses. I want to do it. It's the feeling when I get when someone is like, yeah, so I'm going to build a massive empire. But first, I'm going to need a penthouse in New York City. <laughs> like, I feel like this is not the order. It's not the order. But in these three guys' minds, this was a business plan that was bulletproof. It would stand the test of time. It would be on Shark Tank and nobody would turn it down. It just made sense. Ironically, the mansion and the land was owned by Newhall Land and Farming Company. Yes, a Fred Newhall. It was owned by his family business. What? Yes, the wow. mansion. But Fred told the brothers he didn't want to buy the house through family connections or nepotism. I don't think Fred is as respectable as he sounds. I think his parents either might have been pissed if they found out that he was trying to buy a mansion because they're like, that's a dumb idea. Or maybe he wasn't in good standing with the family. Or maybe he was embarrassed to ask the family for a lending hand. I'm not sure. I don't think it's this whole, I don't want to be a nepotism baby. I don't think it's like that at all. Fred called the owner, an executive Newhall, and he said that he was interested in the property. He never identified himself as a member of the Newhall family, even though he probably would have gotten a steep discount had he done that. Regardless, the company was willing to sell the mansion for pretty cheap. They were just going to tear it down. They just wanted the land anyway. So Fred and Jim needed to come up with nearly $200,000 to buy the mansion. This is calculated for inflation. That's a lot of money. They didn't have that kind of money. Fred felt crushed. You know, he wanted this mansion. It wasn't even just about the mansion. It was for what the mansion represented. His new goal, his new direction in life. Fred is like the type of personality that can't start something unless he feels like it's the perfect start. Which, I mean, I can kind of sympathize that to, with that to a degree, but come on now, you don't need a mansion. 
Besides, that is when a very casual conversation starts popping up over and over again. Anytime the three of them would hang out, they would sit there zoning out asking each other, man, wouldn't life be so much easier if we could get our hands on a couple million dollars? Said everyone. (laughs) Like, what? They would all giggle and be like, yeah, yeah, I would, wouldn't it? Then the next time, you know what would be funny? What? If we kidnap someone for ransom. But we don't hurt anyone, though. Real funny. No, of course not. Nobody would ever get hurt. I mean, it's not like we would actually even do it. But let's say we did it. How do we get away with it? And while they would eat lunch, they would talk about the best way to get ransom money. It's not clear when the plan went from casual banter to straight up plotting, but it did. And Fred was the assumed leader of the group. He had the clearest goal, the biggest motivation, at least at the start. Jim liked the idea of it, but he didn't particularly have this vision at the end that he was just so desperate for. All he knew was that he wanted to be something, be someone. He would even talk about how if he had money, he would <laughs> he would give back to the community, which is ironic because he's basically plotting to take away from the community first. And Rick... Rick is just there. Side note, it's often said that Fred and Jim started stealing cars and committing Grand Theft Auto because they were desperate for money and disgustingly money hungry, which I'm not arguing to it. But um, they just also had like a stroke of bad luck. Okay, I don't want to say it's bad luck, but it's not as nefarious as people make it seem to be. So essentially, Jim and Fred were out in this rural area. They see this wrecked car on the side of the road. Like a big chunk of the car is completely rusted over. It looked like it had been sitting there for at least a few months, if not years. So they pull over. Bingo. There's a little part in the engine called like a carburetor, which is essential to a lot of these older cars. So they're like, okay, well, don't mind if we do. That exact moment, a sheriff deputy pulls up and says, what are you boys doing? Just looking over this wreck. What's that? You weren't planning on stealing it now, were you? Oh, come on, the car is abandoned. Look at it, it even has bullet holes in it and everything. Where are you boys from? The Bay Area. Long way from home, aren't ya? Fred explained that his parents had a quarry here, which is like an open pit mine that you can excavate rock, sand, and gravel from, but it was like 100 miles away, so it was kind of a lie. Regardless, the officer didn't care. He arrested all of them. (laughs) The parents hired really good attorneys, and the charges were dropped to tampering with an automobile from Grand Theft Auto, which would have been a felony. They got a $125 fine and a year of unsupervised probation. I think that this incident, though, probably made them feel more hopeless, though, more desperate to do something about their situation, and they start talking more seriously about their kidnapping ransom plot, if it had to involve children. Apparently, that's the only way they saw it. Nothing else made sense. Jim would later explain, We needed multiple victims to get multiple millions, and we picked children because children are precious. The state would be willing to pay ransom for them, and the kids won't fight back. They're vulnerable. But which group of children? Where do you find a group of kids you can easily kidnap? It would take them a year to work out their full plan and set it into motion. All the while, Jim is taking detailed logs of the process in his diary. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about their plan, shall we? You know how in those movies they play all those dramatic montages where the leader of the heist group is explaining everyone's role and everybody's, you know, very clever jobs and this masterful plan like Money Heist on Netflix? Yeah, this would not be that. This would have very sinister but also very confusing music in the background because I genuinely do not know how any of them thought that this was a good plan. So let's talk about their genius master plan. Their plan was to kidnap a school bus, hijack it with the kids and the bus driver inside, probably on their way back from school. So the afternoon buses, they would then drive the bus to a random rural area, dump it. And at that dump site, they would have two vans waiting. Well, 
Originally, the plan was three. They were going to put all the hostages into those two separate vans. And from there, they were going to drive to Fred's parents' quarry, the one that I told you about. But you can't just dump a bunch of people in a quarry and think you'll be fine. What if they run? What if they're detected? So now, someone in the group had the brilliant idea. Bury the vans. Bury them. Dig a hole. Bury them. Basically, entomb the victims underground. They're like, mm, that won't work. We bury the van, they're going to suffocate to death. But also, how do you do all of that with a bunch of people inside? You really think that at that point where they're being buried alive, these kids are not going to fight back? So their new genius plan was to prep it ahead of time. They were going to dig a giant hole, bury a moving truck, like a giant U-Haul truck. So just the trailer, not the actual wheels and the vehicle. And bury the children in a giant coffin, essentially. What could go wrong? They rented bulldozers to dig the hole. Fred is starting to spend a ton of money to kidnap the kids, by the way. He's digging into his savings for this one. I guess to him, it was a justifiable return on investment. He bought a heavily used truck trailer for $4,000. He bought those three vans that they needed to transport the people. That was an additional $22,000. And he would have to pay $2,000 a month to storage all of this in a warehouse. That is a lot of money, but Fred thought he was being smart. He was making business moves. So back to the hole. They start digging, digging. It was a lot of work. They can only work on the weekends because the quarry is closed. So during the week, there's employees everywhere. Which, side note, none of the quarry workers really came, really cared when they saw bulldozers and stuff because this is a quarry, right? So the three dug out a giant, giant hole. The trailer itself was about 8 feet wide, 16 feet long. So I mean, it's a pretty big hole. Then they buried it. Side note, they bought two trucks for this, but it's speculated that they couldn't fit the two trailers into the hole. They bought two trailers, I meant. So mm -hmm. they only did one. Hmm. Anyway, they buried an entire trailer. Just imagine a U-Haul trailer inside of the ground now in a hole. That's how big it is. They got to work making the accommodations for the children. Two holes near the real wheel wells. That would be their toilets. There were no actual toilets, just holes for them to use. Then they cut three big holes at the top of the trailer. The biggest one was to get everyone in and out of the hole. The other two were part of a makeshift ventilation system so that the air was flowing in and out, so nobody suffocated slowly to death. They bought these giant tubes to act as the air shafts and even bought a battery-operated power exhaust to help push the air out and through the trailer. They started experimenting by throwing heavy soil on top of the trailer to bury it, but you could see that the walls, particularly the ceiling of the trailer, started caving in because of the pressure. So they went back in there and reinforced the interior walls of the truck with some lumber they found. But it wasn't great. Basically just like metal wires to reinforce it. Truly, at any moment, the walls could have caved in, killing everyone. They buried the entire trailer, leaving just an accessible steel plate, plate trap over the door. And that was it. It was set. The hole, the giant torture coffin was put into place. And they start hammering out the nitty gritty parts of their plan. Let's talk about the ransom and why they chose to do this. They said it had to be kids and had to happen when the kids were at school. It couldn't be a bunch of kids at the zoo or the water park. The government would be seen as responsible for America's children when the kids were at school. So that way, the government would feel pressure to pay the ransom. Because who else has that kind of money? They want $5 million, which is a really random number. But Jim later said, he straight up said, I wasn't going to commit any crime, risk my life or my reputation for anything less than a million. So bank robbery wasn't going to work. A drug deal wouldn't work. And the state pays us ransom. We're happy forever. All of our troubles are solved and we let the victims go. Everybody's happy. The only people really capable in wanting to pay that type of ransom would be the government, especially the state of California. Apparently at this time, there was a $5 billion surplus in the California state treasury. 
to be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, hey, something's going to make you feel better or something's going to make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both. And I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health? And not just skin, apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors, and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin. If you didn't know, everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love Symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out. And it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales events on Camrys, Corollas, and more. you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Jim would later say, I just kept thinking, you know, the state's got more than it needs. They're not going to miss five million. So I thought, is there a way to get this money? Is there some way that I can get a lot of money to solve all my problems? And the only thing that I could think of is kidnapping. You know, people will do anything for children in schools. So they're thinking the government is responsible for the schools, but a random children's birthday party is not going to cut it. So that's all great and dandy in theory, but it's like dreaming of winning the lottery. There are dangerous things about ransom money. First is, well, besides the ethical and the moral standing, obviously, first is the problem of getting the money and not getting caught. Mm -hmm. How do you have a designated drop-off site and not expect to be busted later when you grab the cash? 
So after a long debate, the three settled on this genius plan. They were inspired by luggage commercials. So they would demand all the money be split into two suitcases. Then the cash would be on a small airplane flying over a predetermined route, and the three stole these giant flashing hazard lights. They would find a secretive spot between point A and point B that the pilot is on, flash the pilot, and whoever the pilot was would see the lights flash and had to drop it immediately. Drop the suitcases of cash. That makes no sense, and、yeah. the cop will be right there. Yeah, and even if the plane is gonna drop it right when it sees the light, is it like a mile away from you? Yeah, <laughs> in the woods, like where? Yeah. So, um, technically, law enforcement would have no idea where on this route the flashing lights would be. Was their idea? Therefore, they would never find the ransom drop spot until it was too late. They're like, what could possibly go wrong? They genuinely thought that this was ingenious. Then another stroke of genius hit them. They're like, wait, guys, five million dollars in cash is a lot. We got to make sure we have all the money. We're gonna bring one of those printing calculators that they use at the accounting offices. Do you know what I'm talking about? The calculators that print receipts. You do like three plus three equals six, and then you press enter, and it prints it out on paper. Okay. Just so they can count the cash faster. Fred's like, that's good. That's good. Okay, let me buy one. Then another issue came up to the group. Wait, guys, what if they put in fake money? They sat around rubbing their heads together. Okay, okay, we'll tell them that we want used bills only. Okay, that's all said. Wait, what if they put some sort of tracking device in there? They thought long and hard, and they came up with another easy solution. Duh, just buy an X-ray machine. They bought an X-ray machine so that they could X-ray the suitcases before they leave with it to make sure that there was no bugging device. I'm not kidding you. This is how a five-year-old, after watching one James Bond movie, puts together the greatest heist of all time. They bought a used X-ray machine for three thousand dollars. I mean, the fact that they are spending close to fifty thousand dollars for this, with the vans, the bulldozer, the trailer, the additional supplies—it is a lot. Jim even had to go to the library to learn how to use the X-ray machine. But they were set. Okay, look, I know IQ doesn't mean anything, but I couldn't find a verifiable source on what these guys' IQs was, and I just am so interested to know. But I think collectively, the three of them put together wouldn't amount to much. That's the thing about this bizarre group. All three men owned guns, and yes, I've seen rumors online and whispers about how Fred liked to shoot at people because he was pure evil. But genuinely, I don't think it, that was the case. People who knew the family said that. He would just wave the gun around when people trespassed onto his property because he was a little bit scared of trespassers. But overall, he had like never shot a gun in his life. Really, he had no experience with guns. He had never shot anything. They all had zero experience with guns. They had zero history of violence, at least not that we know of. From all accounts, these guys were just kind of weird, but ultimately very chill people. No drug or alcohol use, no violence or abuse towards women or animals, no particular evidence of psychological pathological lying. But I don't know. Maybe it's because they were young. Maybe this is the start of their psychopathic traits coming out. If they hadn't been caught, would they have become serial killers or murderers at one point? I don't know. I've seen a lot of online articles try and paint these guys as like these super scary kids in their childhood, and I feel like if that were the case, it would be easier to digest this case. Because you're like,、oh, okay, that makes sense. But again, most people who knew the family said that they were so normal. The Schoenfeld brothers were almost so normal to the point of being dull. And I don't know, that feels scarier. I do think that they had to have been evil, though, because the fact that they were going to traumatize two dozen kids and scar them for life did not even register in their heads. They genuinely talked about this plot as if they were just going to kindly borrow a bunch of kids, bury them in a bunker for a day or two, and then be five million dollars richer. To show you how dumb and how careless they were, they were excited to provide the kids with some food while they were in the trailer. They wanted the kids to have snacks and be pleased. So what did they get? 
The food supply was two loaves of sliced bread, a jar of peanut butter, a box of Cheerios, a couple bags of potato chips, and a few five-gallon containers of water. For twenty-six children and an adult, I repeat: two loaves of sliced bread, a jar of peanut butter, a box of cereal, and a few bags of potato chips, and a few five-gallon containers of water. That's it. And then they stocked the bunker with fourteen mattresses and some old bed sheets, which looked more like old drapery material. Then cue the confusing heist montage of questionable dumb preparation. The guys felt like they needed protection too, so they sat there using scrap material to sew together a homemade bulletproof vest. I don't know what scraps they used. I don't know if they followed some sort of guide, but I do know that after they were arrested, one of the guys asked the cops, "Do you want to test it out?" And the cops said, "No, we don't." And he said, "No, I didn't mean like you put it on. I meant like you could put it up against something and test it." He genuinely <laughs> wanted to see if his bulletproof vest worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you're also like, wait, what about afterwards? What about after they get the ransom money? Well, that was easy. They were gonna get the money, go into hiding in a pre-rented getaway house that they were paying rent on already in Nevada, a safe house, if you will. They were gonna lie low and keep tabs on the investigation. If for a while the police had no leads, they would stay there and then come out and buy the mansion with the money. Then the rest of the millions of dollars they would leave on the side for the next seven years. Why seven years? That's how long it takes for the statute of limitations of kid. Kidnapping to run out in California. You're like, wow, there's a statute of limitations in California on kidnapping. No, no, there is not. I don't know how they got this information or where they got this information. It was false news. Fred even had a if shit hits the fan backup plan. This is like Plan D. Okay, when he's already exhausted all of his other genius plans, he really hoped it would never get to this. But Fred had bought the birth certificate of a guy named Ralph Snyder who died ten years ago. But had he lived, he would have been the same age as Fred. So Fred went and used that birth certificate to get a driver's license and a passport, and you know things were easier then. Fred decided if the police knew it was him, he was gonna leave the country and go to Canada. Jim and Rick were gonna do the same thing, but they couldn't find new identities. Like this is mind-boggling, I tell you. Just wait till you hear about the actual, original plan of the kidnapping. The original plan involved a plane, three vans, and the school bus, an X-ray machine, floodlights, and bulletproof vests and chloroform. They were gonna hijack the school bus on the afternoon ride, drive it to their vans, and you're like, yeah, that sounds like everything that happened. Where does the plane come in? To put it simply, the kidnappers would fly to the ransom money spot where they had put in. <laughs> So where they did the flashing lights, they were gonna fly there. After they did the flashing lights, one person was gonna fly a plane to that spot where the money was dropped. They were gonna put the money bags into the plane. Then they were gonna take off in the middle of wherever this was. Then they were gonna keep flying, put the plane on autopilot, and Fred, who's the only one in the plane, was gonna jump out with a parachute and the suitcases full of money. But then there were also gonna be mannequins. With suitcases attached to their arms that they would push out of the plane with parachutes, so the cops would have no idea which one was the real Fred, and the plane would continue to fly on autopilot until it ran out of fuel and crashed. Like you're looking at crazy homicide charges if you do that. If you do that and the plane crashes into a family and kills them, let alone I don't know a building of people. Oh, he's like inspired by DB Cooper or something. Yeah, but the thing is. None of them had ever flown a plane. 
And how are they even gonna get a plane? Yeah, they were gonna steal a six-passenger plane, and they had prerequisites for that type of plane. They said it was gonna be a six-passenger plane with a high wing and autopilot. And I'm like, are they planning on returning the plane if it doesn't have autopilot? Like, how? How? Well, that plan was dropped because none of them, literally none of them, had any experience flying any planes. And then in Jim's notebook, he has his own little set of to-do lists, and he made sure to write it down so that he would forget none of it. And the first priority on this to-do list was burn this book. He failed the very first task on the entire list because later it would end up in the hands of the investigators. He also was um, thinking to throw off the investigators by throwing on different political stickers on the bumpers of the vans after kidnapping. So the green and white vans, originally they were going to have like, vote for this person, and then later they were going to slap on, vote for Reagan. Why? Because the authorities would be like, oh no. That can't be the car we're looking for because we're looking for a Republican, and that's a Democrat. Or we're looking for a Democrat, (laughs) that's a Republican. He also wrote a list of warnings to himself, such as, police have infrared to see at night. They also have heat-seeking vision. Assume aerial photographs during all phases. Don't forget last will and bankruptcy proceedings. Don't spend money for seven years. If caught, keep mouth shut. He even wrote, and I quote, observe new laws giving young criminals shorter sentences. Tear gas, question mark? Police might use it. He also wrote, concentrate on succeeding. Like, why does that sound like some sort of alpha male Chad resolution? There is also one note that he just wrote, 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 8. I mean, he's not wrong. (laughs) And he also wrote that if they come across any sort of bugging device, they were going to microwave it to melt the plastic. And then the next page in his diary, he talked about how he went to go see the movie The Exorcist, and he started feeling paranoid that he was losing his grip on sanity and that he was going to be possessed by an evil spirit. Yes. And he also ranted about how he could save the world with the money that he would get from the heist. I'm serious. He's talking about how to give back to the community after he kidnaps 27 people from the community and then demands the community pay up for their lives. And now he's like, how do I make the world a better place? I don't know. Maybe don't commit crimes. Like, they're minds, I tell you. They're minds. Out of this world. And then in the next century, Jim was angry about the fact that he always let Fred push him around. So it's like this whole thing, right? And the reason that Jim ultimately went through with this plot was because he fell in love with a woman named Eileen Kelty. They went on a few dates. I don't know if they were serious. I don't know. But if Jim was ever asked if he had a girlfriend, he'd be like, yes, her name is Eileen. I don't know if Eileen ever felt the same way. Jim also wrote in his diary about how he thought about being a a teacher one day. Now, let's get to the kidnapping. Why these kids specifically? They didn't want to do high schoolers or middle schoolers because they were too old. They were more likely to fight back. The three of these guys, they lived closer to San Francisco, but they thought, we can't hijack a bus in the middle of San San Francisco. That would be dumb. So they chose a random town in the middle of nowhere that was somewhat close to the quarry. Now, side note, remember how they drove for 11 hours? Mm -hmm. You're like, how is that somewhat close? Well, actually, it's not. So the distance between Dairyland Elementary School and the quarry was about 90 miles. So it's a two-hour drive, potentially less, because we're talking rural area. But the kidnappers would drive around nonstop to throw off the hostages. They turned a two-hour drive into an 11-hour drive. And on that hot day in June, they pulled the trigger and committed the biggest kidnapping in U.S. history. But we both know how this ends. They escaped. And I know there's so many questions like, where the hell were the kidnappers? Not a single one of them was standing guard. After burying their victims alive, the kidnappers just left. They realized that they were exhausted. They had just driven around all night, so they went home to take a nap. 
and when they woke, they attempted to call the Chowchilla police to demand their $5 million ransom, which with inflation is about $25 million now. They even had a fully drafted ransom note, but here's the problem. The Chowchilla police was flooded with calls, blowing up with tips as the investigation was feverishly underway. Fred couldn't even get an officer on the line, not even one. And even if he had, would they believe him? Would they take him seriously? They weren't even able to make a ransom demand before the hostages escaped. The kids were taken back to the police station, and a lot of them were already showing signs of PTSD. A lot of them were wetting themselves. Um, Some of them had interesting reactions like one kid was like am i gonna be on the news he's just six years old and then when news broke that the hostages had freed themselves shit really starts hitting the fan with this group rick starts calling up his girlfriend and is like what do i do he decides he's gonna tell his dad what happened and his dad is incredulous he's like are you insane you're gonna get the gas chamber Rick's dad promised to get him an attorney but he never did for an entire week they just moped around the house together but Rick's dad is also the other brother's dad. Yeah. So two brothers' dad. Yeah. And he's like, God, what do I do? What do I do? Rick felt like it was all his fault. Fred had wanted to put more weight on the steel plate door, but Rick was the one that told him, you know, 200 pounds is enough. And then Rick would later argue that he actually subconsciously wanted them to escape. That's why he did that. I don't believe you for yeah. a second. Anyway, Fred and Jim were at the safe house, but they decided that they needed to leave. Like, they needed to flee the country. They... They just couldn't do it. They would fly to Canada and meet up in Vancouver. Now, <laughs> this is another ridiculous thing. You're like, how are they going to meet up in Vancouver? Do they have each other's numbers? Like, what, what's going to happen? Uh, Vancouver is a huge city. Their plan was to go around to the pharmacies and laundromats. They would paint a red X in front of the sidewalk. Now, you would go back at the end of the day and check all the red X's that you had put in front of all the pharmacies and laundromats. Now, if the other party was going to paint a red X... But they see that a red X is already there. They would paint it over with green paint, a green X. And they would wait around for the first person to check back on all their red X's. And they're like, wait a minute, my red X turned green, which means, Fred, are you there? I am so confused. What is this? <laughs> yeah. I'm so confused. Do you want me to re-explain? Uh, sure, yeah. It's like you go to every CVS and yeah. you paint a red X at the front. And yeah. then at the end of the day, you have a list of, let's say, 20 CVSs that you went to. Yeah. And you have to go back and check on those red Xs. Yeah. Now, I am going to every CVS I am near and uh-huh. painting red Xs. But if yeah. I get to a CVS, oh, there's already a red X. That means you've been there. Yeah. So then I will get green paint and paint uh-huh. over your red X with green. Uh-huh. And then I wait around that CVS because you're supposed w- to be checking all the, your red X's. Wait, at the end how of the long? Day. We don't know. Uh, days, weeks, years? <laughs> Till I- 2023. I mean, I'm not saying it's a plan that makes sense. I'm saying this was their plan. <laughs> okay. So Fred was going to fly to Canada because he had a fake ID and passport. Jim was going to drive into Canada. Jim was really annoyed because Fred insisted Jim bring all the guns, which is insane to me because a lot of the times they'll check your car when you cross the border. The first time that Jim tried to cross the Canadian border, they didn't let him in. They're like, you're not even making sense. Why are you visiting? This put Jim on edge. Since he was traveling with guns, he decided that was already a good luck thing, that they didn't search my car. If they did, I would have been screwed. So he went back to Spokane, Washington. He sold his guns legally by with his name, red flag. Then he went back to the border and tried to get back in. And this time they were like, okay, we'll let you in, but we're going to search your car. And when they searched his car, they found two extra guns in the glove compartment that Jim didn't know was there. Fred had put them there. 
Thankfully, they didn't arrest him. Um, not thankfully for us, but I guess for Jim. They didn't arrest him. They slapped him with a $75 fine and sent him away. Meanwhile, Fred is chilling in Vancouver. The clerk that checked him into the hotel under a false name said that um, his impression of Fred was that he was just a big grinning idiot. And that's the vibe. Just looked very dumb. Had a stupid grin on his face all the time. Either way. Fred made it to Vancouver. He was busy trying to call his girlfriend, Irene. He told his dad what he did and started writing letters to him asking him for forgiveness. He also claimed he would never make um, the same mistake again. Not sure which mistake he's referring to, the kidnapping people or the letting them escape part. He also told his mom to sell the x-ray machine that he bought for all of this. He also wrote to Irene all these lovey-dovey letters about how much he loved her. But then he tried to have sex with a 19-year-old. He also wrote a letter to his friend named David, who was a screenwriter in Hollywood, and Fred told him that his crime would make a really good movie of the week. He said, oh. and I quote, If you make it into a film, I want a percentage of it. And my ending is not that exciting, though, so you might have to kill some people or something in the end of the movie. Meanwhile, Rick is at home with Dad, getting more and more anxious, and he decides he's going to turn himself in. He even turns in Jim's diary to the evidence log <laughs> for the police. Yeah, the one that's like, burn this book. He didn't burn it. It was turned into the police. A day after, Jim found out that Rick had turned himself in and he too was wanted along with Fred and their bails were set at a million dollars each. So Jim, he couldn't make it into Canada. He turned himself in. Now, Fred was the only one that stayed in Canada, but he was arrested the day after. And uh, Jim wrote about the FBI. He said that he was very proud of the FBI because they do what they have to do and they seem to be staying within the law and not dis disregarding people's rights like the KGB. So, loaded statement. So, um, yeah, none of them really tried to hide their involvement. All three of them were in prison, awaiting trial. They would all eventually plead guilty to ransom and robbery and kidnapping. Richard Schoenfield was paroled in 2012. Jim Schoenfield in August of 2015. And Fred was denied parole for the 19th time in 2019, mainly due to the fact that Fred was running like a porn and contraband empire in prison. He was a businessman, so not great behavior. Also, he was like running a car dealership out of prison. I don't know how that works. He also inherited his family inheritance that was close to $115 million described in a court filing, but Fred's lawyer would later dispute it. We have no idea how much he got. I think that there is a reason they want to dispute that number because the victims of this tragedy did sue Fred. Now, Fred got married three more times in prison. He was ultimately paroled in 2022, so not too long ago, and he bought a nice house. So he's living his best life. He is 71 years old today. The kidnappers are living their best lives and the victims are not. After the initial crimes, the victims got about $1,000 adjusted for inflation. Ed took a few months off work and then he was back to driving buses, which wow. just imagine the PTSD. And uh, But it's all okay because Ed and the kids were sent on a free trip to Disneyland. Spoiler alert, no, it was not okay. The victims suffered panic attacks, nightmares involving kidnappings, death, personality changes. A lot of them resorted to substance abuse and depression. In 2016, they filed a lawsuit against their kidnappers, and they were awarded an undisclosed settlement using Fred's trust fund. Even immediately after the kidnapping, they were traumatized. They had to be interviewed, given their account of events. The kids say they were so traumatized, like, everywhere they go, they feel like they're running out of oxygen. We don't know how much the victims got. It was enough to pay for some serious therapy, but not enough for a house, is one of, what one of the victims said. Everyone in that small town was traumatized. A townsperson said, The town is so small, there's not a single person in this town who didn't know somebody on that bus. It affected every single person. The amount of unity and pulling together was beautiful. Churches who had differences came together, but 
things changed after. After that, you didn't see kids on the street. And if you did, parents were grasping at them for dear life. It's like a storm that the town had to weather. It's been years and years, and none of them would ever be the same. Ed Ray, the bus driver, died in 2012 at the age of 91. And in the weeks before his death, almost everybody who was buried in the van with him came to his bedside to say goodbye. Wow. And his birthday is a local holiday now. There is a deep connection of trauma and survival between every single person that was buried alive. I mean, it's just heartbreaking to think the level of damage three evil idiots can do to an entire community of people. And that is so terrifying. And that is the story of one of the biggest kidnappings in U.S. history. What are your thoughts on this? I just don't even understand. Please stay safe, and I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.